0: Hi, my name is Lisa Allistway, and on this channel, you will find a variety of inspirational and informational videos. My guest today is Adam Adam Lane-Smith, who is an author, attachment specialist, and a retired licensed psychotherapist specializing in trauma and attachment with experience in both clinical and correctional mental health settings. I will be linking Adam's website down below in the description box for your reference. Welcome, Adam.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. Um, Can you first tell us exactly what is attachment theory and why is it important to understand?
1: Yeah, so attachment is the way that two human beings connect to each other. It should be. It should be secure. It should be hard to pull apart because you're attached. That's what attachment is. It's the understanding that you both actually care about each other, that you're in a mutual relationship, and that it's not based on performance. It's not based on perfection. It's based on genuine mutual care. That's what attachment is. And it's important because if that gets broken, your understanding is that everybody in your life is only there because of your performance and because of your perfection. And if you do anything wrong, they're going to abandon you. It turns everything into an exploitative transaction. You're paying people to love you. You're earning love and approval through actions. And that's a bad way to live. Really bad way.
0: Most definitely. So there's different types of attachment styles. Can we go over those a little bit, starting with secure attachment?
1: Sure. If you like, um, I tell people my opinion on attachment styles is either you have healthy attachment or your attachment is broken. And the attachment styles are not, Hey, this is just who I am. Attachment styles is how your attachment is broken uniquely to you and how you currently function. Everybody eventually We'll have healthy, secure attachment. It's not that secure. Don't don't get stuck into attachment styles like you're going to be there forever and that's who you are. Mm -hmm. That's what I like to tell people because it's it's easy to identify with those and feel like, well, this is just me forever and I will always be afraid of love and always afraid of connection. I will just be slightly less afraid. It shouldn't be that way. So secure. What does secure attachment look like? It looks like you do kind things for other people just because you love them. You do not stop and think about what you're going to get in return for it. And I don't mean that in a cold calculating kind of way, but people with broken attachment, they often will do 10 nice things for other people because they love them, but also because they're hoping that other person will be so grateful that they will take the time to figure out that person's secret code of what they really want. And they'll be so grateful that they'll do it for them in marriages. This is, looks like a husband doing 10 nice things for his wife, hoping that it will amp her sex drive up and she will know that he wants to get frisky that night. And she'll just throw herself at him without him even mentioning it or even trying. And you have to maintain constant plausible deniability of no, I never wanted anything from you. It's that fear of you playing in a constant deficit with other people. So healthy attachment is, doing things because you just love those people and you just want them to benefit. You just want them to feel good. And you know that when you need something, they will do it for you and they will give it to you and they'll take care of you. You know that if you make a mistake, you can make amends. They'll give you a chance to make amends and it's not going to be all right for the rest of my life. You owe me. It's yeah, we make mistakes. Let's make it right together. It's a feeling of togetherness. It's a feeling of being in the in the village instead of living on the outskirts in the cold and the rocks. It's living in the village and people actually care about you. That's what secure attachment looks like. So when you get to the other attachment styles, which one do you want to go at first?
0: Um, let's look at the preoccupied attachment.
1: <laughs> so preoccupied attachment, um, as far as I've seen it, I should say manifest with people. It is a constant focus. far as i've seen it on on ruminations on what did i do right what did i do wrong did i mess up did i say the wrong thing did i ask for that in the nicest way did i is that person upset at me because they didn't text me back it's a constant running log in your head of pluses and pluses and minuses it's a constant tally sheet of being always preoccupied with what you've done right and what you've done wrong and what others have done right and others have done wrong running a tally sheet to see if you are able to get what you want today, or if you have to wait for six months before you can ask to be loved. That's what preoccupied tends to look like with people.
0: Okay. And what about dismissing attachment?
1: So we might sometimes call that, um, avoidant. Sometimes is what we'll call that one. Um, they play out very similarly. Avoidant dismissive is, how do I don't want to put this attachment when it's broken let me explain that real quick when attachment is broken um when we're children when we're six months old and we get put in daycare and our parents are gone every day and we never see them um if our parents are drunk and and violent all the time they're abusive they're neglectful they're just absent our brain blames ourselves and says there's something wrong with me deep down inside that everybody else can say, but me, everybody knows what's wrong with me, but not me. And if I open up and show people who I am, they will realize what is wrong with me. The same as my family did. So I can never show anybody who I am. I have to lock down and keep everybody out and present this cardboard cutout of a perfect person who makes no mistakes, who never asks for anything is never a burden. I'm always good. I'm always smart. I'm always right. I always do the right things. And it builds this overwhelming need to be perfect in relationships because nobody will ever love you. And if they find out who you really are, it's gone. So preoccupied preoccupied attachment problems is constantly ruminating on every little thing you might have done right and might have done wrong. Did I expose myself? Did I show them who I really am? Am I running at a deficit? It's constant. Avoidant or dismissive is That's impossible. No one will ever love me. So screw everybody else. I'm going to keep them out here at arm's length and never connect to anybody. And it's, you see it a lot with oppositional defiant disorder kids. You see it a lot with people who have antisocial personality disorder. You see it a lot with all kinds of pieces where they push those relationships away and they just don't seem to want to connect boys and and young men tend to do this a lot more than young women do. Typically, It's that boy who just won't speak to anybody and is quiet and is silent and and just sits alone in his room and just completely closes out the world.
0: Okay, very good. He's given up. Yeah. Um, What about fearful attachment?
1: So we would also call this anxious attachment, um, which is a constant need to check in and make sure the other person's not mad at you. So, where the preoccupied is ruminating on the inside, the anxious is ruminating on the inside and outside and is constantly overloaded with fear and checking in and, oh, they didn't text me back as fast as they could have. Maybe they've abandoned me. Uh, my husband left to get groceries 10 minutes ago. And I texted him and he didn't reply. Maybe he found a really cute girl at the checkout stand and they are eloping and I will never see him again. It's it's constant fear boiled in at everything. So it's not just, did I do everything right and wrong. It's what are all the disasters that could come in and could play into this? And it's just an endless fear storm and fear mongering of everything.
0: And, and how did these attachment styles manifest?
1: <laughs> it's um, it's that person, you know, who is a really sweet person and is very considerate and very kind, but they just can't seem to relax. And they always think someone's upset at them. And they think they have to get everything right. And then they get into longer relationships, maybe romantic ones. And over six months, a year, two years, it turns into everybody else is always unkind to them. And they are a martyr and they do nothing but kind things and nobody ever helps them. That's what it looks like. So they are both a victim of the world and a victim of themselves. Um, You love them and you care about them and you want good for them, but they are also exhausting to be around because they're constantly apologizing for things that they're doing. They wear you down by apologizing for eating dinner with you, apologizing for spending time with you, apologizing for everything, because you have to remember they're at an, they're operating in a constant deficit. A lot of these people think that they're introverts. So they say, oh, I'm just tired about from social situations because I'm an introvert, And in reality, you're constantly afraid and terrified. And you think that every social encounter is an opportunity to destroy everything you've ever cared about. So it's exhausting because you're on high alert 24 seven. You're not exhausted because you're an introvert. That's what it looks like.
0: So we know, like you mentioned earlier, not to get like consumed by the labels of these attachment styles. We don't really diagnose people that you have this or that style. There was.
1: There's, there's a really great quote. I, th- I think it's Jane Austen, and someone could pick me apart in the comments. I think it's Jane Austen who said um, happy families look very much the same. Unhappy families are each broken in their own unique way. That's kind of what it looks like with attachment. When you have healthy attachment, it's baked into us genetically on an evolutionary level. A good attachment is baked into us. And it looks very similar in the way that our relationships function. Not that we are the same and we're cookie cutters, but a healthy relationship is an identifiably healthy relationship when it gets broken it can get broken in a number of different ways and it's just that you have selected that pattern because it makes the most sense to your brain makes the most sense based on your experiences that you've had your sister, your brain falls into this unique pattern of brokenness that's what an attachment style is is a unique pattern of brokenness when you heal that you will have that same unique secure attachment that everybody else does in a good way
0: right So I know in childhood, they actually do have two diagnoses. Um, They have the reactive attachment disorder, RAD, and then they Mm -hmm. have disinhibited social engagement disorder. And those are actual diagnoses given to children. Um, How does that play out as they get older? Do they eventually recover from these attachment disorders or do they carry on into adulthood?
1: You know, so that's a good question. Um, In therapy school, (laughs) however you want to call Mm it, In in graduate school, when you're going in for a therapy degree and you're going to become a licensed therapist, what they typically tell you is, unless you are planning to work directly with very young children, you will not have to worry about attachment because attachment issues, if it's a detachment disorder, it will always become a conduct disorder and or oppositional defiant disorder. And that will almost always become a personality disorder. And you, as a person who treats anyone above the age of 10, will only meet people who have personality disorders. And then you can retroactively diagnose them in childhood with these other issues. That's Mm -hmm. the extent of the training. Most of us receive about attachment in school. Um, There are probably some great schools that don't teach that way. I wish that all of us could go to those schools. Um, Unfortunately, attachment is just not looked at very closely in the field of psychology. It is now a little bit more because people like me are getting loud about it, but those play out. Um, I mean, those, uh, when you see somebody diagnosed with them like that, those are very severe reactive attachment disorder. If I'm remembering my training right in my head, um, they assess those by taking the child and maybe the mother into a room. They have them play together and they see what the mom is doing. The mom sits there, the child plays. They see if the child checks in with mom periodically. At one point, mom gets up and leaves the room and they see how the child reacts. Then at one, then mom will come back eventually and they see how the child reacts. Reactive attachment disorder um, for, again, from my memory, um, the child is anxious and constantly checking in with mom or may not even leave the, to go play with the toys. They're sitting next to mom. When mom leaves the room, the child sobs uncontrollably. And then when mom comes back in, the child continues to sob uncontrollably, is not adequately comforted, even if mom tries to comfort the child's attachment. Separation anxiety is a big piece of this. Um, it's, it looks ugly. It's, it's a severe type of the attachment issue. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be that severe to have attachment issues. There's a lot of people walking around who have medium attachment issues that they just are always anxious and nervous in relationships. Mm -hmm. They have a constant latent anxiety level of five or six or seven every day. Mm -hmm. They just think relationship stress is normal. They think it's normal not to think anyone really likes them. That's more of what it looks like. The, the extreme Mm -hmm. examples, they often can lead to conduct disorders, to thefts, to, uh, man, I worked with 12. I I worked with families who had 12 year old girls who were prostituting themselves. And these were middle-class or upper middle-class families where they didn't need money at all. It was just for the thrill of it and to get drugs and stuff like that on the side. Um, Those are severe conduct disorder cases who sometimes end up in juvie, sometimes end up with the police, all kinds of programs. The parents will bring them into a therapist and say, here, you fix my kid. Something's wrong with it, Mm -hmm. Um, which tells you a lot about the parents and the parenting style too. So it's it's an ugly situation, um, but you do not have to be diagnosed with with any specific attachment issues to have attachment issues.
0: Okay, very good. So attachment um, issues can be fixed if I guess oh, if yeah. you don't have a personality disorder. If you have a personality disorder, can it not be fixed then?
1: Personality disorders are. Um, they used to be on what's called Axis Two. We used to diagnose Axis One as mental health issues. Axis Two is pervasive, pervasive and developmental issues of this is who you are. It's a piece of you. Um, Personality disorders are typically classified on that axis too. There is specific treatment for personality disorders, personality disorders. I've treated them. It's hard because those people usually have to hit rock bottom before they're willing to accept that there might be a different worldview, mm-hmm. but there's absolutely treatment for that. Um, borderline personality disorder is a really infamous one for that. There's a treatment called dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, which is designed just for borderline. It's It can be very effective. It's as effective as the person though wants it to be. So it's, sometimes it's reaching rock bottom and then being, being willing to, to do that work. But Again, personality disorders and uh, attachment disorders can lead to that. But most people who have attachment issues aren't having personality issues, personality disorders. Um, Attachment issues can absolutely be fixed. And the science backs that up. So someone who has a difficult childhood Abuse, neglect, or even just, just low, low connection with anybody. Sometimes that that will do is prime your brain to bond less through oxytocin. So oxytocin is the non-stress bonding hormone. It's holding hands, it's talking, it's sharing your feelings together, it's sharing meals together. It's bonding without stress. Um, Your brain is meant to bond with that but also with vasopressin vasopressin is is uh, evolutionarily older than oxytocin it came into the human species before there were even mammals before there were humans <laughs> um Men have more vasopressin receptors than women do, but we all have them and we bond through stress. We bond through facing problems together, overcoming challenges together, team-building exercises, why corporate team-building exercises focus so much on those things. It's vasopressin bonding. That's why men in the military bond for life, even if they were only together for a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, vasopressin bonds um, are older and they can use, they can Vasopressin and oxytocin can sort of use each other's receptor sites. It's, it, it's complicated. It's more complicated than that, but let's just say it that way. Um, and when you have a difficult childhood, your brain does not receive enough oxytocin. So your brain often will shift more toward only, not only, but mostly vasopressin bonding, where you will only bond with people through stress instead of bonding with them through the loving and the acceptance, because your brain doesn't know how to accept that oxytocin. And if you do find someone who helps you bond without the stress, Your brain can become very anxious, very worried about that person, very worried about losing that person, very controlling and possessive of that person. Some people in relationships get this way. If it's the only relationship they've ever had, um, it's, it's this whole oxytocin vasopressin shift back and forth. And the research does show that with adequate love and care, your vasopressin bonding can shift back into the the balance, a healthy balance of oxytocin and vasopressin. It takes time. Um, How long? My work. That's a good question. My work <laughs> with attachment. I teach everybody the attachment programs in two weeks, two to three weeks. Okay. Um, I would have I'd have people come into my office when I was working as a therapist and they'd come into my office and I'd educate them. The first session, assess them for things. How, how bad's your anxiety? How bad's your depression? Where are you at with trauma? Um, talk to them a little bit about attachment. Second session, talk to them a lot more about attachment. Give them tasks that they have to go do. They have to have a conversation with somebody and connect to somebody, and they have to open up. Um, once the, once they've managed to open up to three people, the brain starts to completely rewire. And then your brain through practice, as you're just engaged with people shifts back from vasopressin bonding to vasopressin and oxytocin bonding and gets more and more accepting and more and more accepting. I had people at four weeks, people who came into my office, the first session hooked on heroin were just barely clean off of heroin, hated their life. No friends thought their family hated them four weeks later clean off of heroin completely and said, I never, ever want to go back. And I haven't had a craving in a week. Um, I have, I've repaired some of the relationships with my family. I found a new healthy friend. I've done all these things and I can feel my brain healing and I can feel my relationships changing. It can be as fast as three or four weeks. I had one couple come in who um, they had just experienced an affair two weeks before And they came into my office at two weeks after having an affair and said, we want to know if we need to get a divorce, we'd kind of like to fix it, maybe. And I talked to them about attachment. They both had attachment issues. We worked on them and we bonded them together. And over the course of three weeks, they then reported that the relationship was better than it had ever been. Even that was five weeks after the affair, even as newlyweds, even when they were first dating, it wasn't as good as it was now, five weeks after the affair. With three weeks of good attachment bonding, it can be that fast. It is like night and day. And that's why I say when you heal your attachment, it makes sense. It feels good because it's what your brain is meant for attachment styles is the unique way your brain is broken.
0: Mm -hmm. So we get our attachment mostly from our mother and that interaction uh, more so than our father's. Is that correct?
1: I would not say that. No. Okay. (laughs) A lot of people do No, a lot of people do. And that's a common, that's a common misconception. Um, a lot of people do, but I've, I've worked with so many cases where there were, the mother was just excellent, excellent, an excellent, wonderful single mother. And the father was not even in the picture at all. Mm. And the kids is just, their attachment was absolutely destroyed because the brain still says it's a 50, 50 shot. If people are going to leave me, it's a 50, 50 shot if people are going to abandon me. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you just can't make up. You can't make up for it. I've worked with people who had two adopted parents who loved them very much Mm -hmm. and they knew they were adopted and their brain still said something made my biological parents abandon me. What was it? Why was I not good enough for them to keep? And these are people in their thirties that they come in now and we have to process that and try to repair their relationships Mm -hmm. with wonderful, loving adopted parents. So yeah, you, you, you cannot get around the fact that people think they know that they should have two biological parents. Mm -hmm. You just can't get around that fact.
0: So I guess that's why it's so difficult for like step parents to step into that role because those attachments are not natural.
1: No. Yeah. It's, it's harder, especially if the, the biological parent is, has caused problems, um, Mm. has abandoned that child. Very rarely do I see divorces happen almost never where one of the parents doesn't have an attachment issue, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which means the child has a 50, 50 shot when their brain says of somebody is going to love me or not love me. It's just a a coin toss. So it's really hard for a step-parent to reach into that, especially when the the family's been broken, that is reinforced for the child that families really will just abandon each other. Um, Man, step-parents have a heck of a job. It's it's a hard, thankless job for good step-parents out there.
0: Most definitely. Um, So I guess when we hear like people say he's got mommy issues or she's got daddy issues, they're basically talking about attachment styles.
1: That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Now, your opposite sex parent seems to give you. I don't want to say it seems to give you the best confidence because it tells you what to expect from other human beings who are opposite sex and what to accept, expect in most of your relationships. Um, the same sex parent gives you a lot of understanding of yourself and self-acceptance, but the opposite sex parent seems to tell you what you should expect other people think you're worth, um, which is why girls have daddy issues and boys have mommy issues. It, it's very much tied in that way
0: hmm Very good. Um, so how can you identify if somebody has attachment issues?
1: <laughs> so are we talking about ourselves or are we talking about seeing it in someone else?
0: Yeah, let's do both. both. Okay.
1: So if you think you might have attachment issues, and this is not a diagnosis by the way, but if you <laughs> think you might have attachment issues, it might look like somebody does something nice for you. And you immediately start trying to figure out about how to pay them back because you know, you're not worth that gift. So you make it a big debt and you make a big problem out of it and a big fuss. You are constantly trying to think of ways to make other people happy. And and it's because you love them, but it also kind of feels nice that they'll be really grateful. And that's not why you think you're doing it. You're not a bad person and you're not manipulating them, but it's really there in the back of your mind. You're running a tally if you feel like you have to earn love from other people instead of being loved by people, if you feel like people only care about you and only spend time with you for the things you do for them, if you feel like asking for your needs to get met is a burden that nobody's going to want to put up with. If you think making mistakes means there's a big chance people will not give you a chance to make up for it, that they're just going to be done and walk away because you made an honest mistake If you think you can ruin your relationships accidentally, you might have attachment issues and the people around you might have attachment issues because you've probably built a situation where you're not around healthy people. You're around broken people who will reaffirm that bias over and over and over. So when I say you have to earn love through approval and people only spend time with you for what you do for them, you say, well, yeah, of course, that's how the world works because that's how everybody, you know, works.
0: Very good. And also, I know that like if people have experienced a lot of trauma, um, childhood trauma or PTSD, you know, Mm. that's going to leave some, you know, scar that can affect how they view relationships and how they attach. And yeah, yeah, it doesn't mean they can't heal from those things, but that could be a, a warning flag that, you know, you might be dealing with somebody that you're not on the same page with.
1: Yeah. Big time with trauma. What I see is, I mean, it takes the attachment issues and it cranks them into overdrive. It's usually trauma where I start to see not always, but a lot of times trauma is where it blows up into the conduct disorders. It blows up into the personality disorders. Mm -hmm. These are severe traumas because the brain says, not only is there something wrong with me that people will abandon me for. There's something that's so wrong with me that even if someone hurts me, nobody will come save me. No mm-hmm. one is ever going to help me. No one will ever save me. I am alone in a scary world and people will hurt me if they get the chance. That's where you see a lot of that dismissive or avoidant attachment style can come in. That's where it, the person starts turning angry at the outside world. Sometimes not always though, but not even mostly a lot of times people take on that trauma and it just cements for them that they're not worth anything. And mm-hmm. they think that's normal.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and you see this in grief sometimes when like if a child loses a parent and mm-hmm. so they're not being abandoned, they they are gone. They can still maybe manifest some of these attachment issues from a death of a parent,
1: correct? They, they can. Yeah. It's it, sometimes it'll look a little bit different. Um, there can still be attachment issues. Sometimes it's just that nobody, not that they're not worth taking care of, but that nobody's going to. And, and that's, a, that's mm-hmm. an even more complicated type of attachment. Like. It's the world is scary and terrifying, and I can't even connect to people. I'm afraid to get too close to people. That can happen too, like in a, a relationship trauma. It mm-hmm. it looks the same, and it sometimes operates the same. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I had saw in a, in a previous interview that you did uh, regarding ADHD, and that yeah. it's really attachment issues. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, oftentimes, oftentimes attachment issues are misdiagnosed as ADHD. Um, there are some select people in the population who do seem to have a different neurology that would be ADHD, but I don't suspect it's the one in seven American boys that's medicated for ADHD. I don't think that one in seven of a different neurology, a lot of times people see little boys, six, seven, eight years old with anxiety, they're restless, they're jumping around. They can't sit still. They're nervous. They have all this bubbling energy. They make constant jokes. They're the jokester in the class. They're playing pranks on other kids. They can't stop fidgeting. They lose things all the time because they're preoccupied. They have all these different behaviors that come from anxiety being amped up through the So Their system is flooded with cortisol all the time, and they're always stressed out, and they're always preoccupied by relationships and trying to be the good boy and, and earn love from people or earn laughter from people. And it gets misdiagnosed as oh you have that adhd neurology there's something wrong with you we need to medicate you to be more appropriate and instead of fixing the attachment they just throw medication at the problem usually stimulants which just make the problem so bad so they we medicate the little boys
0: so why is that not you know when they're when a parent is frustrated and it's taking their child to get you know like help me with my child in this issue that the automatic thing is hey Here's some pills, just throw pills at the situation versus maybe the underlying core issues that are going on.
1: Um, a lot of it's the push from schools. So I've actually worked with a lot of families where the principal will contact the parents. The teacher diagnoses the child and says, your kid has ADHD. Mm-hmm. You need to go get them tested because they're disrupting my classroom. And the teacher's packed in there with 30 kids and is yelling at all the boys all day and is tired of the boys jumping out of their seats because attachment issues are getting more common, not less. So now a good chunk of the boys in the classroom are all anxious, nervous, bouncing around and they're not acting appropriate like the little girls are. Mm -hmm. So the teacher says, your child is disruptive. I can't tolerate them anymore. Goes to the principal and the principal says, if you don't get your child medicated, we will expel your child from the school because they're disruptive. And the parents say, well, I guess I have no choice. And they take the child in and the child is diagnosed and they run a diagnostic and they say, well, your kid has all the symptoms of ADHD. Here's medication. And they pound the medication and no and off they go. Um, it's, it's just a funnel. It's a funnel. Once you put your little boy into public school, there is a very good chance he will be diagnosed by someone who is not trained to diagnose.
0: Right. And there's a, a,
1: a severe lack of psychiatrists who have a dual, usually a dual degree, um, including a medical degree. And there's a severe lack of them. So it's a lot of nurses who are prescribing the medication, you know, 10, 20, 30 nurses who are overseen by one uh, psychiatrist offsite. And they're throwing the medication at it because that's what they've been trained to do. And here in America, we have a medical model. It's you have something wrong with you. You need a pill. Take this pill and your life will be mediocre.
0: Yeah. You ha- you see so many kids, young people, adults that, you know, deal with anxiety and depression and, um, they're on antidepressants. I mean, it's skyrocketed the amount of antidepressants that people are taking, not that it doesn't have a place, but I'm wondering if there's other avenues that need to be exhausted before people just want the quick fix.
1: Exactly. And there are, um, I've worked with people who are on three or four different psych meds at the same time. I've worked with people I, I remember one person i went over their sheet with them they had 27 different medications now a lot of those were medical but five or six of those were just uh-huh. for psych and to deal with the, the side effects of some of the other problems can you imagine taking 27 medications a day and six of them are psych and you don't even know what they're really doing or what they're supposed to be doing your doctor is just throwing those meds at you that's the reality for a lot of people especially at the lowest rung of society i worked with a lot of people who couldn't even afford therapy so they paid zero and the state paid a tiny little minimum And I made a barely livable wage working in a clinic, just working for massively underprivileged and at-risk families. They were just pounding the medications into them. And some of those medications would cost $2,000 per pill. And the state would pay that out of taxpayer funds. Yes, straight into the pharmaceutical company's pockets. So you're paying $2,000 per pill. So you want to put as many people on that as possible. If you have 30 of those in a month, that's 60 grand per client. Yeah, it's it's a huge numbers game, and that's that's the reason that not much research is thrown into things like attachment, because when you fix attachment latent anxieties plummet through the ground, like your mm-hmm. depression starts to get fixed because male and female depression works very differently, but they both are based on attachment. So mm-hmm. if you have broken attachment, odds are good. You will face depression at some time in your life. You odds are very good. You're going to face an, on, ongoing anxiety and not realize it because you'll think it's normal to be anxious 24 seven, mm-hmm. but we medicate them away. We throw three or four different meds at them. That's why um, anti-anxiety medication. I'm trying to remember which one it is, but it's one of the most abused street drugs that there is it's an anti-anxiety medication wow more than anything else yeah That's it's crazy yeah it's it's yeah so
0: this That's brings me we to at. my next question like how the heck did we get here if you look at previous generations and values and um this generational attachment that keeps getting passed down that hey it, it's okay to be dismissive or avoidant or you know like and get a pass for that like how did we get here in 2021 and how how did this come about
1: so let's rewind to 1921 let's rewind to world war one okay um, prior prior to world war one we had a little bit of industrialization people were starting to figure out hey factories are cool and they can make stuff for us and that shifted a lot of people from the family farms into the cities to get jobs at factories where you'd work 18 hours a day or 20 hours a day, work yourself to death and cities away from your family. World war one hit and it shifted a lot of things into factory because we, we became a worldwide powerhouse at that point. It was huge. The United States became this huge factory culture. Um, at that point, everyone started saying, well, I'm not making enough money. I need to move. And then we had the central banking came in and said, hey, credit is great. Just put everything on credit with the roaring 20s. Just mm-hmm. put it all on credit. We had the massive credit fallout and the, and the economy smash in, in 1929, the Great Depression. We had the Dust Bowl that blew away the topsoil from some of the most fertile farmland in America. We had family farms being destroyed. People couldn't even afford shoes. People Mm -hmm. loading up their 20 family members into one big truck and driving to California um, and becoming Okies in California. We had the complete destruction of the family network in america mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that became the silent generation and the greatest generation they lived through all of that then they went and fought the nazis overseas right they became the, they, we had the greatest generation who fought that we had the silent generation who went through it all and just suffered and said suffering is my place i will take care of my family even if it murders me at the age of 40 greatest generation i will do everything plus fight these wars and take care of the world and what happened was all those families were shattered family bonds were broken. If your parents weren't perfect, you before could at least go to your grandparents. You could go to your uncles, your aunts, your grandparents and great-grandparents. You probably had like six generations because everyone had kids when they were 15 or 20. You
0: mm-hmm. probably had all
1: the generations within, you know the small village that you were all related and you had everything there. And people wouldn't even go more than maybe 20 miles from where they were born. People stayed within 20 miles from where they were born. That was their whole life for the most part right? until that happened. And then everyone scattered to cities. It destroyed our way of life completely destroyed our way of life. We came back from World War II and they said, all right, it's now the normal for every single family to break apart into a nuclear family, have a small house, two kids and a dog, and then your kids Mm -hmm. grow up and they move out and get their own home and they move away and Mm -hmm. you have an empty nest. And then you just sell your your house and you move into a condo somewhere as an old couple and just live out your life and your kids leave. And that became normal instead of this is the family home where everybody Mm -hmm. comes back to. This is the family village. This is the family connection. So not only are parents exhausted, not only are they not spending time with their kids because they're locked in factory jobs at that time, there were no family bonds there to make up for the missing pieces. If you had five uncles who said, hey, we love you, your dad's dead, but we're going to take care of you and we're still a family. You don't have that anymore. Now it's mom and dad are gone in factory jobs and the kids are raising themselves and now the kids are in daycare modern day. The boomer generation took that and some of them understood what the earlier generations had sacrificed for them. And some of the boomers did not. And they said, why does nobody love me? And then they put up a middle finger to the world and said, if you don't love me, then I'm going to screw everybody I can out of everything I get. Half the boomers, it seems like we're good. Half of them were bad. Not all boomers, but there it is. Um, Boomers currently are tripling the divorce rates in their 70s. The average divorce rate is going up triple in the 70s just because that's where the boomers are still at. They still can't love each other.
0: Um, they passed on,
1: they passed on horrible, horrible things to generate generation Y and X. Um, then, then the millennials came along. People say that X and Y were broken by the earlier, earlier boomers who then tried to make exact copies of themselves in the millennials. And now millennials and boomers are copies of each other and hate each other, but the attachments are even worse in the millennial generation. Mm-hmm. Now they have all this technology to go out and get approval and, and fake approval and fake love and fake attention on the internet. Yep. yep, And it's just worse. And now the millennials are having kids and now generation Z is like, I've treated some of them. It's a meat grinder. At this point, they don't even know that there was once a system a hundred years ago where families lived together in giant networks. They don't even know what it's like to have family at home. They don't know what it's like to be loved and accepted. All they see is their parents shooting up drugs or smoking drugs and having sex with eight different people in the same month and divorcing five times. Divorcing five times, boyfriends coming through the house and molesting one or two of the kids. They it's it's one of the number one. Sex abuse problems in America is boyfriends and stepfathers of, yeah. of single mothers, yeah.
0: um
1: and that has become normal. Generation Z has no idea that once upon a time, a hundred years ago, we yeah. had a good system. Yeah. It's become worse and worse and worse with every generation. So Generation yeah. Z, I've treated a lot of them. It's a meat grinder. Mm-hmm. Half mm-hmm. of them want to kill themselves, and the other half are angry at the world and want to burn it down. Yeah. So it's that's what they've what
0: inherited, happy. like you said. It's what they've inherited. I. I think it's quite interesting when you look at like the movements of the 60s, there were some good ones there, you know, but there was also some decadent ones as well yep. that we saw, you know, in the 70s, the, the free love, the boomers are known for, you know, creating one night stands, which
1: all kinds of stuff. Yeah. that
0: has manifested today with, you know, a complete hookup culture, uh, you know, ghosting, you know, just rudeness. And there's a lot of uh, gender wars. Going on because of these values and so forth that have been for decades and decades in the making. Yeah.
1: Yep. And we have now been convinced that it was once upon a time evil and horrible, and it's better now than it ever was. So we should just take pills to deal with the problems because this is the best it will ever get. That's what we've been told. A hundred years ago. It was very different than it is today. A hundred years yeah. ago, things worked. Was there the odd occasion where people weren't happy and people were miserable and there were still broken families? Yes, of sure. course. Not everything was perfect, but it was also, we had self-correcting networks. You had, you know, if if you if your husband beat you, you had 15 male cousins and 10 uncles and five brothers who were going to take a two by four and knock all of your husband's teeth out. So he wouldn't do that. You had, mm-hmm. you had these protective networks back then. Um, modern day, modern day, political movements want us to believe that every man in history who ever lived beat his wife with joy in his heart every day. And that's just Mm -hmm. not the way it was. That's, that's just what we look back and say, wow, if people hated each other as much today as they did then, then they probably abused each other all the time. That's what we look back and project brokenness on the past. Mm -hmm. It, It doesn't have to be that way. And we can fix it. Like I said, man, it takes like three, four weeks to start fixing your attachment. The more people who fix it, the better the world becomes.
0: Yeah. I, so are you positive or maybe, um, I don't know, how do you see us, you know, if we keep on this trajectory in our society, is it going to get better? Is it going to get worse? <laughs> and because are people really interested in, you know, if, if it's working for them and their goals are being met, why would they, you know, fix their attachment issue?
1: Yeah, no. Um, It cannot stay the way it is because it's getting worse Mm -hmm. and worse and worse generation z is not going to let it stay the way it is once the boomers are gone once generation x and y are gone once even once the millennials start getting older and gen z starts taking physical control um man they're angry oh they're so angry Mm -hmm. and the generation who comes after them is probably going to be even worse um it's no it's not you
0: see things like the development of the metaverse and Mm
1: -hmm. sex Mm -hmm.
0: robots. I mean, how the heck are we going to attach to machines? Are they going to accept that, that way of life?
1: No, it can't stay this way. Um, I know people it's fun to, and a lot of people say, wow, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse from here. It will get worse to some extent, but at some point the system has to correct back because we are not designed for this. And we are getting further and further and further from what we are designed for, which means more and more suicides. When you look at the suicide epidemic, the overdose epidemic, you look at the childless rate, um, the people who don't have the kids are dying or will die off. The people who kill themselves and the people who overdose are going to be gone. What's going to be left is the family systems that begin to correct. And there are huge, huge movements of families that are correcting, who are fixing their attachment as, as whole communities who are moving in and building villages now building extended family villages i know people uh, in portugal right now there's a movement where people are starting to move together and build communal villages where they assess the attachment of people who want to move into the village and then they move in and they raise their kids together in not like a like a commune but in a healthy community built on good attachment and and traditional values in a good sense um this is happening all over the world and and there's a phrase someone smart said someone smarter than me i don't remember who it was but they said the future belongs to those who who show up the people who show up who are still alive who have children who pass down those values those are the people that are going to shape the world and it's going to shift back i do believe that i do believe the pendulum has to swing back because it has to correct
0: okay well i mean there is some that think that there may be a reviving of religion you know some who think like Nietzsche is like god is dead and we killed him and that's bad because there's no reverence for anything, but I don't know, like in America, we have some junk values that need to get, you know, worked out because I think Mm it, you know, we have a lot of these attachment issues in our culture that we've just accepted and we're on autopilot. We're just going with them. Yep. Yeah, Yeah. There's a, there's a
1: saying, there's a saying that progress happens one grave at a time. Um, once the boomers are gone and I'm not wishing death on the boomers, but once that entire generation is gone, because right now they are still firmly in power in every politi- every political office, most, co- mm-hmm. a lot of corporations, um, mm-hmm. they hold all the reins at every level of society is still in the hands of the boomers. Once they are mm-hmm. gone, the next generation who takes control does not have the physical or mental or emotional discipline that they do. The boomers can hold all of this together while still having those degenerate problems, <laughs> The next generations can't even function so it will start to spiral mm-hmm. out of control have you ever seen the movie uh, idiocracy where oh, society yeah. just completely crumbles yeah that's what we're heading into is you can you can maintain degeneracy as long as the people at to the top have some level of discipline and and pain tolerance when you get a new generation in who has no pain tolerance no ability to maintain systems and just cannot function on a day-to-day basis all the systems start completely collapsing. So 10, 15 years from now, it will be a very different conversation because society won't be able to hold together the way it is anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it, it is interesting kind of to peer into the future and where we're headed and hopefully stay hopeful and positive given mm-hmm. some of the storms that are around that we currently experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of this dating culture with the, like the red pill movement and Mm -hmm. on one side, and then you have like the extreme feminism on the other side, and it's very Mm -hmm. dysfunctional attachment and exploitative type of relating that they're promoting. Can you touch on Mm -hmm. what, what's going on with that and how it's affecting people and confusing people with their attachment issues?
1: Yeah. So when you have attachment issues, people come along and make a lot of money off of you by telling you it's good that you have attachment issues because the other people out there hate you. And here's how you can get what you want at their expense. And it's okay to do that because they're bad people. That's what feminism is based on. And that's what red pill movement is both based on radical feminism, modern feminism, I should say. That's what those two movements are based on is men are pieces of crap who will rape you at the drop of a hat. Here's what you need to do to manage them. And here's how we should shove them in a cage. There are feminists out there calling, literally calling to put men in concentration camps and exterminate as many of us as possible. and Then put us as breeding stock. There's there's British, (laughs) British feminists calling for that. Yeah. It sounds stupid, but it's actually happening. Um, It's being called for, I should say. There's another
0: interesting form of feminism. That's like that um kind of women teaching other women how to be gold diggers how to mm-hmm. exploit men mm-hmm. and, and you know get as much money as you can from them and-,
1: and it's it's two sides of the same angry female coin of men this is what men are so here's what you need to do to control them and manage them and get what you want out of them uh, mm-hmm. red pill is the same it's pickup artists dudes who go out and are taught To harness the insecurities that young women have who have broken attachment, go out, seek out women who have broken attachment, make them think that there's a connection with them, have sex with them, and then ghost them and disappear. And that's their way of getting revenge for those women not loving and accepting them. Mm. That's it's, it's man. It's just it's broken attachment all around. And those guys say, well, there's no good women in the world. They're all like this. Well, yes, that's because you're going to places where there's women with broken attachment and healthy women will avoid you like the plague and unhealthy women will actually let you do what you're doing. So you think only unhealthy women exist. And it's Mm -hmm. the same for feminists. Feminists spend all their time around really predatory men who say, yeah, I'm a feminist. Go girl power. And then they get those women alone and then say, now I've supported your cause. You owe me. And they sexually abuse those women. And those women say, wow. Even the best men in the world, the male feminists are rapists. Other men must be even worse. And they build these self-sustaining echo chambers. Both sides do, does about the other side is evil. Everybody has attachment issues. I don't ever have to get better because it's just normal.
0: Mm-hmm. That's very, that's, very, it's a- very dark to, uh, to go into those, um, type of philosophies. And I know that for like the younger generation that is very, um, influential, let's say they can maybe fall into this or just completely give up. You see a lot of young men, just, they've already given up on women. They would rather yeah. look at porn and play video games and you yeah. can't convince them to take a woman on a date. Like yeah, they no, the already group. replaced yeah. them.
1: Yeah. The Migto group, they're done. Um, I've caught, I've heard it called the sexodus, um, over in Japan, it's escalated like they're leading the way on this charge of men, uh, completely 100% checking out of life. There was one dude over in, I think it was Japan. It might have been South Korea who married his female uh, character in a video game. Like he married his fake electronic girlfriend, like, cause that was the best he could get. And he felt that was the most fulfillment he'd ever found with a woman. Um, A lot of men are giving up just mm-hmm. giving up because what the, what the dating sites show us like Tinder The data shows that 90% of women are clustering to the top 10% of men, who just treat those women like their harem and just have sex with as many of those women as they want. And those women are all trying to attract that one dude, and the other 90% of men are left over with 10% of women to try to figure out what they can get. And those 90% of guys are like, "I guess there's no women in the world. I'll just stay over here." So it's 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 created. It has created like an ape structure of top 10% of males get all the females in a harem and all the rest of the dudes are off here in the corner.
0: Yeah. It's chilling.
1: It, it's, it's,
0: it's no wonder that people struggle with the dating world, and the dating scene with, you know, the advent of dating apps, which are obviously predatory and not the healthiest way to go about a relationship. And I can see why people are on both sides. They're just like, nope, I'm hands in the air. I'm done with the dating scene.
1: Yeah. And when you have that many women chasing that, chasing a tiny pool of men, all those women then have to degrade, degrading, degrade, whatever value they have. So you got to send nudes on the first date. You got to have sex on the first date. You got to do everything on the first date and go as big as possible to try to get that love and attention. Then you have to do that every single time you go on a date with a guy. And that becomes, their, that becomes their normal dating experience. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah, who, who wouldn't get tired of that eventually if you're just mm-hmm. trying to be loved and that's the only mm-hmm. thing you, can, you think you can do to get love and it yeah. never works, man, who wouldn't get angry?
0: What is interesting, if you look at like older generations, it was, you needed to get to know me first before we can get physical and, and sexual. And it's almost yeah, we'll like figure. the script has been flipped. It's like, no, we'll get sexual okay. and physical first. Don't dare try to get to know me. That's what we're kind of seeing and is what is being seen in the younger generation
1: back to the attachment. It's the belief Mm -hmm. that there's something wrong deep down inside of you that everybody else can see. You don't know what it is, but if, if, if you were really a good girl, daddy wouldn't have left you. So you must be a piece of crap but you can use sex to get approval from people. And if he has sex with you, it means he really likes you because you wouldn't have sex with anybody unless you really liked him. So he must really like you. And if you have sex, he'll really want to stay around you. And it just boom, 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 boom. Mm -hmm. So it takes the, the sweetest girls and throws them into a meat grinder is what it does.
0: Yeah. And I think what we're seeing too with some of the attachment issues playing out in our culture is that adolescence has been extended to like age 30 now. People are 40,
1: 50, 60. Yeah, I know. Yeah.
0: 40, 50, like people just have not matured with their, because they haven't fixed their attachment basically.
1: Correct. They're still children and they're still reacting to other people because they're trying to get the love that they never got from their parents and they're Mm -hmm. alone and they're afraid and they've never grown in relationships. So they aren't really growing at all. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Most definitely. So let's talk a little bit about like the healing of all of this. What type of work is involved to heal from your attachments?
1: Yeah. So number one is just learning that you have an attachment issue and ruining your fun. I tell people <laughs> that's half my job. That's half my job is making people miserable <laughs> and ruining their fun. Um,
0: <laughs> it's a wake up call though. People need to get you have part of therapy is what is that, you know, identifying an, an acceptance and, and being truthful with yourself. So
1: correct. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's even just realizing that there's a different way to live because most people with attachment issues think all this is normal. And then I describe this and they say, that's me. I didn't even know that there was a different way to live. I thought everybody felt that way. And a lot of people do but it doesn't make it right. So realizing that you have an attachment issue. And then I've got a, I mean, I've got a $5 book on Amazon called slaying your fear that runs through exactly how to fix this. A lot of clinicians across the United States are using that as a treatment program for their clients. Cause it's just so it's short and to the point it's a hundred pages. It's uh, it's like a two hour audio book. If you want to get it that way. Um, but it, it just walks you through finding ways to accept yourself. Mm-hmm. First of all, finding ways to uh, open up and have a specific type of conversation with someone else where you come out as an anxious person and say, this is who I am in my relationships. I am so anxious and worried. And I am secretly ruminating on everything. And I'm trying to figure out if I've made some people angry. And you probably never knew this about me. And everybody who knows you says, yes, duh, we already knew that about you. We, saw, we knew that 10 years ago. Why are you just finding out? And you say, okay, well, I want to talk to you openly about things. And I want to have a good relationship. And nobody on earth is ever going to say, no, that sounds terrible. Let's not do that. So then you receive acceptance from people by opening up and showing them who you are. And now your brain at first says, no, let's never do that. That's dangerous. We'll lose everything if we open up. You do that and you make yourself open up. And the moment you do, you see the love and acceptance on their face as they don't spit on you for for having open conversation. They don't try to burn you or throw you out a window. They accept you. So that sounds great. Yeah, let's have an open conversation, an open relationship where we talk about things. And then you come, your brain says, okay, well, that was clearly a fluke. Let's never try that again. You do it again with a second person and your brain says, don't do it. It's going to it's gonna ruin everything. And you do it and it works and they love and accept you. And your brain says, okay, maybe it's like 50-50, but let's never try it again. And you try it with a third person and your brain says, okay, I was wrong. Three people have loved and accepted me. I've been clearly wrong. I need to fix this. And then your brain Anxiety is your brain telling you something is dangerous. Even if you don't think it is, it's your brain forming an anxious, a a fearful association. As you fix that, it's a phobia. As you fix that phobia of openness, three people, your brain says, okay, I was wrong. Maybe I can kind of trust it. And then you have to test it. And then someone upsets you and annoys you by accident. You say, hey, you know what? That really bothered me. Could you not do that anymore? Could you do this other thing instead? And they say, "Yeah, yeah, for sure. No worries. And they do it. And you're like, I was able to correct them and they didn't like set me on fire. That was great. Mm -hmm. And then as you ask for things, Hey, could you please do this for me? Yeah, I'd love to do that. (gasps) Really? And your brain, then it rewires and it shifts that vasopressin and oxytocin bonding. It shifts back to a a healthy balance and it Mm -hmm. learns to vasopressin bond because you're you're now forming a, a stressful relationship, a good one with the person you're, you're accomplishing goals together. You will vasopressin bond with them. And that opens the doorway for more oxytocin bonding with them. Now, when you do that with three people, yeah, yeah, go for it. The
0: question, these three people, they have to have secure attachment first, because if they have a disorganized attachment, this is probably not going to work.
1: No, you would think so. You, you (laughs) can have two people. That's a good question. You can have two people who have broken attachment, heal each other. You can. You guys can heal each other because you're both accomplishing the same job together and you will vasopressin bond because you're both overcoming your anxieties together. You will vasopressin bond through the stress of it and you'll be joined tightly as long as both of you are committed to actually fixing the attachment problems.
0: Okay, so Um, if you're working with a personality disordered person, forget it.
1: No, and I I don't recommend people talk to their parents as the first three people because your parents were the ones who gave you these attachment issues and may have Mm. attachment issues themselves. And the risk is just too high that even a good parent will get really defensive and angry and feel like you're attacking them for being a bad parent. Um, I really recommend you go to friends or siblings, maybe. Um, But friends or siblings is usually the Mm -hmm. first three people you really want to go to. Some people have success with maybe their mom if they had a really healthy mom. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. A a
0: A therapist can do so much, but you really need to take it into the real world, right?
1: And a therapist can sometimes be your first person. That's mm-hmm. kind of one role some therapists will fulfill is to be that first person you talk to. Yeah. But I mean, some part of your brain knows you're paying this person to sit there and yeah. not hate you. So um, yeah. it, it helps to have two or three other people, but you're, the more you have, your brain starts to heal. It starts to shift that oxygen. Oh, Hey, Adam,
0: you're frozen. Eek, eek on me you just froze on me can you just reiterate the last sentence
1: yep all right are we good
0: yeah we're good now
1: (laughs) sorry about that i have i live out in the middle of cow country and our internet is run by one squirrel who runs on a little hamster wheel and that's That's how my internet runs so sometimes yeah sometimes (laughs) it blips out on me um but I'm back. So your brain will start to, as you build relationships with three people and test it and test it and test it, your neural pathways will begin to heal and your brain will bond more through oxytocin and vasopressin instead of only extreme vasopressin bonding. Um, And that opens up all kinds of avenues to heal. And what happens is your brain says, I don't live on the outskirts of the village where tigers can eat me and I'll starve to death. I live in the middle of the village where everybody cares about me and we're all friends in a community and your brain anxiety starts to just plummet and you start to feel safe because you're in a community and your brain says, no matter what happens, I have these three people who love and accept me. So then you don't have to go out and earn approval from the lady at the gas station who who checks out your groceries and the person at school who tries to talk to you. You don't have to earn approval from anybody because you have three people who love and accept you. So your risk and your stress goes down in all your other relationships. And then because you're so unstressed and relaxed, you're cool. And then everybody wants to be your friend. And healthy people stop avoiding you because you're not sending up the attachment red flags anymore. So then you start pulling in healthy fam- family and healthy friends, and healthy people just can't wait to get a hold of you. And then you start forming healthier bonds and you start having healthy uh, romantic and sexual relationships, healthy everything. And then everything in life gets better. It all starts with realizing you have attachment, opening up about that attachment to somebody that you trust, and finding those three people so you can open up to them and expose yourself for who you are and build those relationships with them on purpose. And when you do that, mm-hmm. man, it goes as fast as you want to go. It can go in three weeks. It can go in three months. It can go in three years.
0: When yeah. You're ready. You're ready. Yeah. This is huge. I, I'm not sure mo- most people realize what is affecting their day-to-day life, their quality of life, their happiness in life can all be related back to this.
1: I will. I'll take that a step further. So depression I think that the biological purpose for us being able to feel depressed, think about it. If you are that miserable, depression shuts down your inhibitions, about what you're going to say and how you're just going to unload and you're going to get irritable, you're going to get low energy. You're just not going to have the patience and the tolerance for all the games anymore. So you will start to be honest, painfully honest. And if people start to accept what you say, you might say the things you need to say and get them out. If you were in a big, healthy, thriving family network of 50 family members in the village, our depression is a problem now because we're alone in an apartment with Netflix. And so we take medications now because we don't have a self-correcting network that would correct our, our depression and heal it from, from these attachment issues. Because if you have this and you think nobody will ever love you, you have no purpose in life, you will have no healthy relationships and it doesn't matter because you're just worthless. Why wouldn't you get depressed? Mm-hmm. And if you have no self-correcting network, how are you going to get better?
0: Mm -hmm. I definitely think in this last year with like COVID, if one thing hasn't been illuminated, it's that your family and your friends that love you and that support, that is probably the most important thing, you know, to give you your meaning and purpose in life.
1: And that is one thing I have seen when I say society will correct itself is a lot of people are committing suicide and overdosing or giving up and just plummeting into the depths. Yeah. But a lot of people are correcting their fill building family networks. There's families moving back in together. There's families expanding one home into two homes. There's family building additional homes on their property. There's families moving out to the country and building three homes and there's three family clusters in there and they're all working together and raising their kids. People are realizing we have power in numbers. People are realizing that to have that power in numbers, we have to fix our attachments. So we're not in a sick, toxic family. We're in a healthy family people are learning that. And there's two polarized extremes, people who are dying and people who are actually fixing the problem. And the future belongs to the people who fix the problem. So if you want to live in the future, fix the problem, join the communities that are fixing the problem.
0: Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, we're uh, coming to the end of this. Do you have anything else you would like to add that's pertinent to the topic of attachment uh, theory and styles?
1: Oh boy. So much, (laughs) so (laughs) much. It it really is that if you have anxiety and you don't know why, if you're depressed and you don't know why it is probably attachment study attachment. I have on my YouTube. I have, so I I have a ton of free YouTube guides on my YouTube. Just look up Adam Lane Smith attachment. I'm there. It'll be my face. (laughs) Um, I have, what is attachment? I have, why is it dangerous for your relationships? All the different ways that it impacts everything. Um, I'm over on TikTok. I just, I had a, over the weekend I had uh, my TikTok blew up from 300 followers on Thursday. Now I'm at 65,000 followers. Cause I published a 60 second video about hookup culture mm-hmm. and how women in hookup culture have, have orgasms oh, I saw that a, one. <laughs> if they have them. And it, it just disrupts everything. And it bonds you to people that won't really love you. Mm-hmm. Um, and man, people got mad about that. Unfortunately, the truth hurts sometimes, right, but that was right. just 60 seconds. So there's tons of information out there. If you're wondering about all this, um, if you're not alone, you're not alone. If you have attachment issues, but, and there is a way to get better, you get better as fast as you want to. And it's simple. It's not easy. It's very hard and very scary. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's very simple to get better if you want to.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for coming on my channel. It was very helpful to kind of learn from you today. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you for having me. Yes. And if you guys like this video, give it a thumbs up and don't forget to share and subscribe and hit the bell to be alerted to when the next video drops. Thanks for watching.